Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hey, hey, y'all. What is going on? Welcome in to the latest edition of the Xander's Facts Podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. We are rolling on Wednesday, March 30th. It is episode 58 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. Thank you all for listening. And remember, if you like the facts, if you think you're going to like the Xander's Facts on this week's edition of the Xander's Facts Podcast, remember to click the follow button on this podcast, download this episode, rate the podcast, review the podcast, and then go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Xander's Facts. That's Xander with a Z. And most importantly, tell all your friends, Spread Facts, Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell everyone you know about the Xander's Facts Podcast. And remember to go watch the Xander's Facts Podcast on YouTube. You can check out all of our new episodes launching on YouTube. And subscribe to Xander's Weekend Facts, our weekly newsletter, which is a recap of the week's top headlines every Sunday morning. Subscribe in the link in this episode's description. And it's free. Oh. And if you need a place to find all these links, check out the Xander's Facts link tree, which is also linked in this episode's description. Xander's Facts Podcast. We have got a ton to talk about this week. Let's start with sports, though. College basketball. It's final four weekend. Oh, my gosh. And it's going to be a really good final four. I'm going to break it down here for you on the podcast. I have got so many facts on this podcast related to this Final Four, it's going to make your head spin. Let's get started because the college basketball season concludes this weekend and March Madness, I would say, has lived up to the hype so far. My bracket hasn't exactly lived up to the hype, but the madness the last few weeks definitely has. Well, actually, that's probably not true because my bracket's actually doing pretty good and you're going to see why in a minute. Oh, yay. But two weeks ago on the last edition of this podcast... We had our official Xander's Facts bracket guru, Andrew, join the podcast, second straight year, and we broke down all 68 teams in the tournament before a game had even been played. Today, two weeks later, we are down to just four teams from those 68, with the Final Four taking place this Saturday. Kansas, Duke, Villanova, and North Carolina are the four teams to make it to the final weekend of college basketball's season. No one cares. Kansas is the only one seed in this tournament to have made the final weekend. Duke has broken through in Coach K's final tournament. Villanova shot less than 30% from the field in the Elite Eight, but they beat Houston. And North Carolina is the first eight seed in the Final Four since Kentucky in 2014. And last year, the Final Four consisted of three number one seeds and one number two seed with no repeats over to this season. So the four teams that made the Final Four last year did not make it this year. And the last time one of these four teams made the Final Four was Kansas when they did it in 2018. The last champion out of these four is North Carolina. They did it in 2017. And this is the first time in NCAA tournament history that every team in the Final Four has multiple national championships entering the weekend. How about that? It's a fact. But these four teams are not the entire story of the tournament. As you might know, this tournament featured a 15 seed going farther in the tournament than ever before. St. Peter's, a tiny Jesuit school in Jersey City, New Jersey, from the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, the MAC, became only the third 15 seed to reach the Sweet 16. They then became the first 15 seed and highest seeded team ever to advance to the Elite Eight, where they fell on Sunday to North Carolina. 
A 15 seed has now advanced, though, to the Sweet 16 in two straight tournaments, with Oral Roberts doing it last year. St. Peter's first round win over number two seed Kentucky was actually the largest financial upset in tournament history. Kentucky's basketball budget is over 11 times higher than St. Peter's. And let's just say Coach John Calipari's salary is a lot more than the annual revenue for the St. Peter's basketball program. So that was big news. And then they just kept winning until they met North Carolina. But that was pretty awesome. Fact, Nugget. And then another fact, even though higher seeds have made and won their Elite Eight matchup since, number 10 seed Miami was the first team since Syracuse in 2016 to make the Elite Eight as a 10 seed. They did fall, though, to one seed Kansas. But the ACC advanced a tournament high three teams to the Elite Eight out of only five total bids in this tournament, with two of those teams advancing to the Final Four. The Big Ten, on the other hand, which had a tournament high nine total bids, advanced zero, zero teams to the Elite Eight, which continues the Big Ten's tournament drought. A current Big Ten team has not won the tournament since Maryland in 2002. That was when they were in the ACC. And the last team to win it while they were in the Big Ten was Michigan State in 2000. So sorry. Man, that was rough. But the ACC rolling once again. I don't know why you doubted them. Best basketball conference in the country, as always. But with that out of the way, let's take a look at this Saturday's matchups. There are two games in college basketball this Saturday. The Final Four. It takes place this Saturday. The Final Four and the National Championship game are going to take place at the Caesars Superdome in New Orleans, the home of the Saints, the fifth time that New Orleans will host the Final Four and the first time since 2012. All five of those times have taken place in the same building, in the Superdome. The first matchup on Saturday takes place at 6.09 p.m. Eastern. The South Regional Champion, number two seed Villanova, takes on the Midwest Regional Champion, number one seed Kansas. Nice. So let's start with Villanova. They made it through the South region without having to face the number one seed Arizona, who did lose to Houston in the Sweet 16. And Villanova beat Houston by a score of 50 to 44 in the Elite Eight in a truly ugly offensive game. However, this Nova team is going to look different than the one that we have seen in the past few games because Justin Moore, who has averaged nearly 15 points per game this season and has been a key factor for the Wildcats tore his Achilles in the final minutes of Saturday's game and is not going to play this weekend. However, Villanova still has loads of talent. They are led by one of the nation's top players in Colin Gillespie, along with Caleb Daniels. That's Villanova. The only top seed to make it to the final weekend, though, was Kansas. They had a tremendous second half in the Elite Eight against number 10 seed Miami. At the halftime of that game, Kansas trailed by six points they ended up winning by 26. Whoa. And they looked exactly like a championship squad should in that second half. And other than the first half against Miami, there was really little doubt over the last two weeks that Kansas was going to lose in the games that they were playing. Ochai Abaji has been the name to watch all season, but Remy Martin has been heating up in this tournament. He averages 16.7 points per game in the four games that they have played in this tournament. So out of the four teams in this weekend's games, Kansas has actually gone the longest since playing in the national championship when they won the 2008 championship over Memphis. Not having Justin Moore is going to be huge for Villanova, though, and I expect Kansas's offense to continue rolling after their 47-point second-half performance on Sunday. 
I've got Kansas winning and moving on to Monday's national championship. That's cool. The second matchup of the Final Four. Oh, boy. Get ready. That will take place at approximately 8.49 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, or about half an hour after the first game ends, with West Regional Champion number 2 seed Duke and East Regional Champion number 8 seed North Carolina. Oh, boy. This is going to be the first meeting of this rivalry in the NCAA tournament. That's pretty crazy. This is going to be probably one of the most hyped Final Four games in history. Let's start with Duke, though. The Blue Devils have been in the spotlight all tournament long because every game has been treated as though it's been Coach K's last because he's retiring after the season, if you didn't know that. Coming into the tournament, though, Duke was seen as a young but talented team that would have to grow throughout the tournament in order to deliver, but that is exactly what they have done over the last four games. Jeremy Roach and Wendell Moore Jr. have shown the ability to consistently knock down tough shots, and Mark Williams has been one of college basketball's dominant inside forces. And then there's the freshman, Paolo Bancaro. And Bancaro has shown the ability throughout the season to dominate basically any game he's playing in. It's not that he's just shooting 53% from deep in the tournament. It's the power that he shows over these other top college players that's really reminiscent of some of the former Duke greats that have played in Durham. Even if you don't watch much college basketball, mm-hmm, you'll want to watch this game because of Paolo Bancaro. He is going to be a force to reckon with in the NBA pretty soon. Get that dough! The other team, the lowest seed in this weekend's games, North Carolina. They have arguably the biggest win out of these schools in this tournament, though, with a win in the second round over top-seeded Baylor. The Tar Heels were running away with that game. They led by 27 points in the second half, but they absolutely collapsed. Baylor sent the game to overtime, but Carolina was able to come out on top in overtime, and that showed tremendous team strength. Armando Baycott, R.J. Davis, Caleb Love, and Brady Manick, all four of them have had games with 20 or more points in this tournament. And first-year head coach Hubert Davis' squad also got through the biggest test of this tournament when they defeated the mighty Peacocks of St. Peter's in the Elite Eight. The Peacocks! Doug Eddard! Oh my gosh, what a team that was! St. Peter's! But they're not in this game. It's Carolina and Duke. And the build-up to this game is going to be absolutely enormous. The state of North Carolina is probably going to lose its mind. They probably already have lost their minds. These two rivals have played a total of 334 NCAA tournament games between the two. They have been to 36 combined Final Fours, and they have won combined 11 national championships. Saturday's game will be the 258th time that these schools will play each other in the sport of men's college basketball, and it is going to be the biggest game ever out of those 258. This is also going to be the first time in tournament history that two teams from the same state and the same conference will meet in the national semifinals or later in the tournament. And also, one more fact, in the 97 games that Coach K has coached in between these two schools, Duke has won 50 games, Carolina has won 47. Oh my gosh! So many facts. I told you I had a lot of facts. Too many facts. And this is Coach K's 13th and final Final Four, which is also setting the record for the number of Final Four appearances for a coach. 
He passed John Wooden from UCLA, who had 12. The best player on the floor Saturday night is going to be Paolo Bancaro. And I think that's going to be the difference. This should be a really great game, and the intensity is probably going to be off the charts. But I've got Duke moving on in the national championship game. Duke and Kansas. Wonder where I've heard that before. But I'd just like to note, real quickly, that the ACC champion, who was none of those schools, who was the Virginia Tech Hokies, they beat these two teams on back-to-back nights to win the ACC championship. So, technically, the Hokies should be in the Final Four. Just saying. That's blasphemy! But that is going to be a really good game between Carolina and Duke. They split the season series this year. And that game, a lot of people are saying, could be one of the most watched basketball total basketball games in the history of television in this country. I don't know. It's going to be on cable. But a lot of people are going to be watching it because it is Duke and Carolina for the first time ever in the NCAA tournament. And it's in the Final Four in Coach K's last season. I mean, how about that? But that is the Final Four. Those are my picks, but there's one game left. Monday. The national championship game is taking place. And well, 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 Kansas and Duke. You know, here we go. If you took a look at my bracket before this tournament actually started, you would have seen Kansas and Duke in the national championship game. How about that? Because in my final four, I had Kansas and Duke. Now, the other two teams, I had Murray State and Arizona, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Kansas and Duke. Last year, in my final four, The only team I had right was Baylor, but Baylor won the championship, so... Disrespectful! Kind of crazy how the facts don't lie. Hmm. But since I've got these two teams in my championship, I'm probably going to pick the team that I picked previously to win, right? Well, if you thought that, you probably know Xander very well. I've got Kansas, the Jayhawks, winning this game over the Duke Blue Devils and clinching their fourth national championship. I know that Paliban Caro is going to provide the Jayhawks some trouble, and it may be officially Coach K's final game, but I really like this Kansas team. It's not just the offense that has set teams on fire this postseason. Since March 3rd, opponents have only shot the ball at a 41.6% from inside the arc, which is 25th in the nation in that time span. It's the truth. This Kansas team feels a lot like last year's Baylor team. They've got a bunch of guys who can significantly contribute without scoring a bunch of points like Mitch Lightfoot and Dewan Harris Jr. Plus, you've got Ochai Abaji, Christian Braun, Jalen Wilson, and David McCormick, who are all averaging over 10 points per game. And there's Remy Martin, who has stood out in this tournament. I like Kansas spoiling Coach K's final game, just like his last home game and just like his last ACC tournament game. As I predicted, before the tournament began, Xander's facts. I like Kansas winning the national championship. This will be their fourth national championship, and that would put Kansas tied with UConn for sixth all-time, and it would give head coach Bill Self his second championship with the Jayhawks. So the national championship game takes place on Monday night. Tip-off is at 9.20 p.m. Eastern Time. Both the Final Four and the national championship game will be on TBS in the U.S. with alternate viewing options available on TNT and True TV. So that's the Final Four. That's the national championship. Those are this weekend's college basketball games. And basically, that's the 2021-2022 college basketball season. It has definitely been... A historic season, especially for the Hokies, and one that will be remembered for a long time for 
many reasons. And after this weekend, it is going to be time to turn the page to another version of a basketball postseason, the NBA playoffs, which begin in two weeks. Next week is the final week of the regular season in the NBA. Next Sunday is going to be the final day of regular season games. And you know that on the next Sanders Facts podcast, you are going to get the full lowdown on the NBA playoffs. I didn't ask that. So that's our basketball talk for this week. Hopefully, you learn some facts from Xander, because clearly I do have all the facts. Last year, Baylor. This year, Kansas and Duke. I mean, the facts. We get it! Xander's Facts Podcast. So that's college basketball for this week. And for this season, we won't be talking about college basketball until November. It'll be terrible. But we've got some other stuff to talk about in sports before we get to the other stuff this week. We are talking about soccer. And don't turn off the podcast because I just said the word soccer because this is very big. The United States men's national team, as I am speaking right now, as this podcast comes out Wednesday morning, they are only one win away from qualifying for the 2022 World Cup. Oh my gosh! Let's talk about it. As we are nearing the end of qualifying matches for the 2022 World Cup, After failing to qualify four years ago, everyone remembers, it was a disaster. It appears, it would appear, that the United States men's national team, the USMNT, are going to make it back to soccer's biggest stage this year. There's only one more CONCACAF World Cup qualifying match remaining, and it would take a literal miracle for the U.S. not to clinch a spot on Wednesday night. That's right, tonight, Wednesday night. The United States men's national team will be playing their final World Cup qualifying game. So here's a breakdown of the final World Cup qualifying window, what the U.S. has done and what they need to do in their match tonight. Plus, I got a whole overview of the World Cup and the qualifying in all the countries that have already qualified for the World Cup. But let's start with the U.S. because the U.S. are looking to return to the World Cup for the first time since 2020. It is the final international window of World Cup qualifying. And in this final window, the U.S. would have to face Mexico and Costa Rica away and Panama at home. By far, just looking at the paper, the most difficult three-match window this qualifying cycle. Entering this window, the four teams involved made up four of the five top spots in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying with Canada at the top being the other squad. The U.S. came into the window also down several key players due to injuries, including Weston McKinney, Serginho Des, Brennan Aronson, goalkeeper Matt Turner, and a bunch of others, which is not good. Uh-oh. But last Thursday night, the U.S. kicked off the window at the Estadio Azteca in Mexico City, in Mexico, where they have never won a World Cup qualifying match. And after many thought that the U.S. head coach Greg Berhalter would not start his top squad available to him, It appears that he did. However, it only ended up in a nil-nil draw against what many saw as an inferior, old, and sloppy Mexico team. However, it did give the U.S. one point, which would actually prove pretty crucial as I'm talking right now. This game was also seen, though, as a bit of an end of an era for the U.S.-Mexico rivalry because since the two nations host the 2026 World Cup along with Canada, it appears as though they're going to automatically qualify. We're not 100% yet, but that is the assumption. Also, with the World Cup expanding to 48 teams, competitive qualifying games are probably going to be a thing of the past, especially in North America, 
CONCACAF, so we're probably not going to see as many meaningful U.S.-Mexico games in the future. So sad. Although, we'll probably have some meetings in CONCACAF leagues like the Nations League that we had last year. Remember that 3-2 win in Denver, which was pretty cool. The Gold Cup, which they also won the U.S. did last summer. And World Cup, other tournaments that could still happen. Those will probably be exciting, but World Cup qualifying matches, which have typically been where this rivalry has been most heated, are probably going away, which is kind of sad. But it does look like both of these teams are going to qualify for the World Cup, with both the U.S. and Mexico gaining a point. They could both clinch berths to Qatar on Sunday. However, they would have needed fourth place Costa Rica to draw or lose to already eliminated El Salvador which did not happen because Rica beat El Salvador. So while the U.S. or Mexico couldn't qualify, if they won their matches on Sunday, it would make the result nearly inevitable. Mexico was barely able to pass by Honduras 1-0, and at the same time as that game was going on, the U.S. hosted Panama in Orlando. And while he did make some changes to the lineup, the U.S. head coach Greg Berhalter appeared to start his strongest lineup available to him at the time. And it worked out well because the first 45 minutes of that match were some of the best soccer that the United States has played in a long time. The U.S. dominated that game from nearly start to finish. Christian Pulisic, Captain America, got the opportunity to take two penalties in the first half, which he nailed, both of them. And Paul Ariola and Jesus Ferreira both added goals to make the halftime score 4-0 in favor of the Americans. How about that? And then... In the second half, in the 65th minute, Pulisic got a sweet goal to score his first hat trick with the national team. That's a fact! Panama got a late goal, though, but the final score was 5-1. to one. The U.S. absolutely took care of business. Everything was clicking for the Stars and Stripes. They attacked with ferocity, their players were in sync, and you could tell that a fire had been lit under this young American squad, even though they were missing a bunch of players. And team captain for the match, Christian Pulisic, he actually played, he was one of the few players who is still with the national team who played in 2017 against Trinidad and Tobago in that game where the U.S. lost and they lost their hopes of qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. Pulisic was on the field extremely emotional after that game. And you could tell in this game that he was not going to let that happen Again, he made sure to push the U.S. as far as they could go in this match. That was truly a sight to behold from one of the world's bright young stars in the game. The LeBron James of soccer. However, the job is not done for the U.S. Because in the final World Cup qualifying match that they have for this cycle, the U.S. head down to San Jose to take on Costa Rica in Costa Rica but they do not need a result. The U.S. have actually never been able to beat Costa Rica down in Central America. That's never happened, no matter the competition. Terrible. To qualify, however, they don't actually have to win or draw. The U.S. can qualify with a win, a draw, or a loss that is not six goals or higher. So, sounds doable, right? Well, in 2017... In the 2017 World Cup qualifiers, when the U.S. played at Costa Rica, they lost 4-0. They can only lose 5-0 or below to win. (laughs) Hopefully they don't lose by that much. That'd be pretty bad. But they only need to lose 
by less than six goals, and they are in the World Cup. So, what does this mean? And the U.S. did beat Costa Rica 2-1 to one in the current cycle last year. That game was played in the U.S. And the U.S. have not lost a match by six goals or more since a loss against France in 1979. That was at the Netherlands, and that was not good. But that's probably not going to happen, and hopefully it's not going to happen. As long as a major collapse is not in store, the United States are going to be going to the World Cup later this year. And if they even win in Costa Rica, that would be awesome too, because that'd be the first time they ever won. The United States men's national team, they take on Costa Rica Wednesday night. Tonight, the night this podcast comes out, 9.05 p.m. Eastern. That game can be watched on CBS Sports Network and Paramount Plus. And if you want to watch it in Spanish, you can watch it on NBC Universo and on Peacock. That is the U.S. Oh my gosh, they're almost to the World Cup. We're almost there. And yes, it would have been majorly disappointing if they had not qualified for the World Cup. But the fact that they are, they're about to, is just a sight to behold. It's incredible. Seriously? But it's not just a big week for soccer in North America, as I alluded to earlier. This is the final week for World Cup qualifying around the world. Because on Friday at noon Eastern, the 2022 World Cup draw is going to take place in Qatar. This will decide which nations are getting placed into which groups for the tournament. Very exciting. Please. So this takes place on Friday, but how the draw works, if you don't know, is there are 32 teams in this World Cup. Those 32 teams are split into four pots, with each pot having eight teams. The first pot features the host, Qatar, and the seven best teams based on FIFA rankings. Pot 2 features the next best eight, according to the rankings, and Pot 3 has the next best eight, according to the FIFA rankings. Pot 4 features the five lowest-ranked teams, along with two teams, the winners of two inter-confederation playoff matches, which we have talked about on this podcast. We were afraid the U.S. might go to those, but looks like they're not going to, and a to-be-determined team from Europe, a UEFA team. Those two playoff matches actually take place in June in Qatar and will feature the fifth-place team from South America and the fourth-round winner from Asia. That's one game, and the other match is a fourth-place team from CONCACAF, looks like it's going to be Costa Rica, versus the top team in Oceania. The UEFA team are going to come from a playoff in June, and that team will either be Wales, Scotland, or Ukraine. Please let it be Ukraine. That would be absolutely awesome. A sure thing! The draw will begin with the teams in pot one and go down to pot four. So they're going to pick out the eight teams that are in the first pot first, put them in the groups, then the second pot, then the third pot, then the fourth pot. So with eight groups, four teams are placed in each group. Each group will feature only one team from each pot, and only one team from each confederation can be placed into a group So, like, the U.S. and Mexico could not be placed in the same group because they're both from CONCACAF. However, UEFA is given an exception because Europe is allocated 13 spots in the tournament, meaning that five groups will have two European teams. And the draw is going to take place at noon Eastern this Friday. You can watch it live on FS1 or in Spanish on Telemundo. And so far, as of this podcast recording and coming out Wednesday morning, 27 nations have qualified to hear their name drawn. So here is a breakdown of the nations that have qualified by confederation or continent. Here it comes! So let's start with UEFA because they are given the most spots at 13. 
UEFA featured in their qualifying 10 groups of 5 or 6 teams with the top team in each group advancing to the World Cup. Those teams are Serbia, Spain, Switzerland, France, Belgium, Denmark, Netherlands, Croatia, England, and Germany. The runner-ups in each group, along with the top two UEFA Nations League teams not in the top two of their group, advance to the playoff stage, with three teams qualifying from the playoffs. So on Tuesday, Poland and Portugal qualified for the World Cup. Now in June, Scotland will face Ukraine. They are scheduled to face off in June. That match was delayed because, of course, there's some other things going on in Ukraine right now. And the winner of that game will face Wales with the winner of that match taking the final spot for UEFA in the World Cup. And notice how I did not say Italy because for the second straight time, the Italians have failed to qualify for the World Cup. They were in the playoff, but they lost to North Macedonia. So they are not going to the World Cup for the second straight time. Sorry, not sorry. So that's Europe. Let's move to Asia. Asia has four spots, not including the host Qatar, who automatically qualified. Those four spots for the AFC have been clinched, with Iran, South Korea, Japan, and Saudi Arabia clinching bids to the World Cup. And in June, Australia will face the United Arab Emirates, with the winner of that match advancing to the Intercontinental Playoff. So that's Asia, South America, Comembol, Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador, and Uruguay have all qualified, and Peru will advance to the Interconfederation Playoff. That's South America. North America, CONCACAF has one team who has qualified. That is Canada. They qualified on Sunday. This is their second ever World Cup and their first since 1986. So that was a big moment on Sunday when they qualified. And the U.S. and Mexico look to clinch their bids tonight. Costa Rica is nipping at their heels, though, but it looks like the U.S. and Mexico are going to advance. Two of those three teams, U.S., Mexico, Costa Rica, will advance with the fourth team heading to the Inter-Confederation playoff. In Africa, CAF, all five of the African bids were clinched on Tuesday. Senegal, Cameroon, Ghana, Morocco, and Tunisia all won their final round matches to advance to the World Cup. And then there's Oceania, the OFC, which only has one spot, and that is in the playoff. So the Solomon Islands and New Zealand play today on Wednesday to determine which team advances to the Inter-Confederation playoff against the CONCACAF team, which is probably going to be Costa Rica. So that is the whole breakdown on the World Cup. Now you all know who's going to be in the World Cup or who is trying to get into the World Cup. And we are going to find out Friday which groups the nations will be in. Exciting times! Yeah, okay. But before we move on, before we get to our politics this week, I just want to mention the Champions League because the quarterfinals of the UEFA Champions League kick off next week. The four matchups for the quarterfinals include Manchester City versus Atletico Madrid and Benfica versus Liverpool. The first leg of those games is going to be Tuesday at 3 o'clock on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. The second leg of those games is going to be Wednesday, April 13th. The other two matches include reigning Europa League winners via Real against Bayern Munich and the current champions of the Champions League, Chelsea against the all-time most successful squad in the Champions League, Real Madrid. The first leg of those games is going to be next Wednesday, April 6th at 3 o'clock Eastern on CBS and Paramount+. And the second leg will be Tuesday, April 12th. And if you want my picks, those are going to be posted on the Xander's Facts social media channels before the games kick off next week. So stay tuned. 
And there you go. There is our sports on the Zaders Facts podcast for this week. Some important stuff. The Final Four is this weekend, and the United States is going to go back to the World Cup. Can you believe it? It's incredible. But we are not done with episode 58 of the Zaders Facts podcast. When we come back, we're going to take a quick look at the latest big stories that have been in the news recently. And I'm going to focus on a topic that I have found very interesting recently, which does deal with sports as well. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all of that. Politics is next as the Zaders Facts Podcast continues. Zaders Facts. So if you've been paying attention, you would know that there are several big stories that have been in the news recently. First off, we have the wife of a Supreme Court justice, the wife of Clarence Thomas, who was texting then-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about overturning the election just after the 2020 presidential election, which is a big story because Thomas obviously needs to recuse himself from cases regarding the election that fall before the court, which he has failed to do so far. On Monday, a federal judge said that former president, you know him, Donnie Boy, quote, more likely than not, unquote, committed federal crimes as he tried to obstruct the counting of electoral college votes by the Congress on January 6, 2021. And of course, we've got the war in Ukraine go- still going on. It began over one month ago now, and it looks as though it could last for a while. And by the way, if you haven't listened to our past episodes with our expert on this topic, Dr. Bobby, go listen to this. We had two episodes with him in the past few weeks for some excellent insight on that conflict. Same as Bog. But today, I just wanted to take a few minutes and take a quick look into a topic that has been on the minds of many recently. Let's just say that there are a lot more people invested in women's college swimming than there were a few weeks ago. Uh Uh-oh, Xander, I know what you're talking about. Yes, we are. We are talking about trans rights in the United States. By now, you have probably heard the name of Leah Thomas, the 24-year-old transgender woman who captured national championships in women's swimming in the past month for Penn. Thomas became the first transgender athlete to win an NCAA national championship. However, there is, of course, major controversy over whether she should have been allowed to swim in the first place. So, I wanted to take just a quick look at this topic because it is absolutely incredibly complicated, contentious, and there are some facts that you probably should know before you start making arguments and taking sides. Because this is not the only issue with trans rights going on in this country right now. So, first off, I wanted to take a look at the story of Leah Thomas because a lot of you probably don't know her story. First off, Sports Illustrated had an exclusive article that featured Thomas's life, which you need to check out because you're probably going to learn a lot by reading that article. But Thomas swam for three years with the men's team at Penn, the gender that she was born as. At the Ivy League Championships in her freshman year, she finished in the top eight in the 500-yard freestyle, the 1,000-yard freestyle, and the 1,650-yard freestyle. Then the next season, she finished second in those races at the Ivy League Championships. However, in that article, Thomas says that she was questioning her identity and she began questioning her identity around the end of high school when she felt, quote, disconnected with my body, unquote. 
When she first went to Penn, she joined a group on campus where she was paired with a trans mentor, and Thomas says the feelings that her mentors had were basically the same that she was having beforehand. So she said that the most miserable time of her life was while she was setting personal records in the pool as a man, by the way. She came out to her parents and brother during the summer before her sophomore year, but it did take time for her to come out to her teammates and coaches. And in order to transition from male to female, she would have to undergo hormone replacement therapy, which she began in May of 2019. The NCAA does allow athletes to change gender categories, but requires a full year of HRT in order to compete for championship events. She immediately felt that she was regressing in the pool, which ART is absolutely supposed to do for males transitioning to females. During her junior year, she still swam with the men, but only sporadically. And the next year was the COVID year, and Thomas took the season off as she got an extra year of eligibility for the season, just like all NCAA athletes did because of COVID. So this season has been her first swimming with the women. Now, the controversy has been apparent over the past few months. Many have argued that Thomas should not be allowed to compete. Why? Because, people are saying, the male puberty that she went through gave her an advantage over the women who she was competing against. A letter from parents of Penn swimming athletes said that the integrity of women's sports was at stake with one parent anonymously saying that while they do support Leah as a trans woman, they cannot stand by while she rewrites records and eliminates biological women from this sport. Because, yeah, that is absolutely what is going on, please. You're spreading lies. Leah is not the first trans athlete, not even the first trans college swimmer, in fact. But her winning a national championship and her story appearing on Fox News has really set off the right-wing culture war contingent, and this story has basically spun out of control. Several Republican-led states have introduced and passed bills that have banned transgender individuals from competing in athletics, despite the fact that less than 1% of the entire U.S. population, less than 1%, identify as transgender, and far less are transgender athletes. Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox was presented a bill from the legislature, which he vetoed. That bill would have banned transgender athletes. He vetoed it because he cited a, quote, broad misunderstanding, unquote, around the participation of transgender youth and the mental health implications that it could have. The statistics he cited are true from a 2020 study that found that 86% of trans youth have reported suicidal thoughts and 56% have reported a suicide attempt. 56% of all trans youth have reported a suicide attempt, which is just astronomical. Cox noted that out of 75,000 high school kids that play sports in Utah, only four were transgender and only one played on a girls team. But you know, these are the most pressing issues of our time. So I would agree that this is definitely a controversial topic that we actually all of us don't know all the facts about. And at what point scientifically and biologically a trans woman becomes a man and vice versa, we don't know. Now, the NCAA's rules from 2011 up until this year only required one year of hormonal replacement theory, 
but new USA swimming guidelines require a testosterone level of 5 nanomoles per liter that transgender athletes would need to register for 36 consecutive months before they could apply to swim as a woman. So there are different guidelines that are going on right now, which we don't know which ones we should be following. And I can absolutely understand those arguments. But what I cannot understand are individuals who are basically saying that there is absolutely no way that they would ever support a transgender athlete competing in athletics. Not just athletes, but transgender individuals in general. Like calling transgender individuals names and purposely referring to them by the wrong gender, which has been going on the last few weeks, like, that that's just basically being an asshole. Whoops. Like, shut up. These attacks have been coming, and they just keep coming too. Like from a former Republican candidate for political office in Mississippi, who wrote on Twitter, quote, Some of y'all still want to try and find political compromise with those that want to groom our school-aged children and pretend men are women, etc. I think that they need to be lined up against a wall before a firing squad to be sent to an early judgment, unquote. That tweet was taken down by Twitter because it violated its rules. Now, that same individual later tweeted that, quote, transgendered people are merely victims. It's their pedo-groomers that are consumed by evil. Unquote. He also, during his campaign, would not allow women journalists to accompany him during his campaign while allowing male journalists to do so. So, there are a lot of transphobic, homophobic, sexist, and yes, racist people that are still in our society today. Something that we definitely need to overcome. However, they are not the majority, and I have statistics to back that up. Here comes a fact! Because a report from the Pew Research Center that came out last summer found that 40% of U.S. adults know someone who is transgender, and those adults are more likely to say that greater acceptance of trans people is better for society. Like people that get affected by gun violence, or people that are against abortions, but then get pregnant, and then they have an abortion. Or Nancy Reagan, when Ronald had Alzheimer's. And new research from the Human Rights Campaign Foundation found that more than 70% of Americans believe that trans people should, quote, have equal rights and be able to live free of violence and discrimination, unquote. Now, also from that research, 80% of adults who consume left-leaning news media sources or media that does not include right-leaning sources believe, quote, any transgender person deserves support and health care that helps them to live as their authentic gender, unquote. In contrast, 51% of adults who consume only right-leaning news media said that they could best serve transgender individuals by, quote, helping them to live as the sex they were born, unquote while just over 30% said that trans people should have equal treatment under the law. And so this is a serious debate, and I will absolutely have it when talking about how we should allow transgender athletes to participate in sports. How? Not should we, because we should. Because just rejecting them outright is demeaning them, and that's not right. For some of the most vulnerable people, in our society. Like, I don't know if you heard, but 56% of trans youth have reported a suicide attempt. That's a unusually high number. Very unusually high. Which, I don't understand how you can be pro-life and anti-abortion, but then treat people 
as they are living like absolute garbage because that is what these bills are doing. And if you're actually worried about fairness in college athletes, like a lot of these people say they are, I might invite you to a host of other topics that will probably pique your interest because college athletics and sports in general have never been fair. That's why there are favorites and underdogs, Davids and Goliaths. There can be concern about transgender athletes competing, absolutely, but saying it's about fairness, basically, you would have to be concerned about so many other things in athletics if fairness is your one true concern, because there are so many ways that sports are not fair. So basically, in conclusion, hopefully you learned something from this little spiel, and now you won't go out of your way to be a bully. Don't be a bully. Because demeaning transgender individuals is being a bully. It's not accepting. It's not what I would consider a Christian value. I don't think Jesus would be going around saying, Hey, you stupid man! Stop being a female! You're a man! I don't think Jesus would be doing that. I think he would be loving everyone. Like they say he would. I, that's not even what I want to get into. That is what I've got for you this week on the Zeter's Facts Podcast. Thank you all for listening. We do not have a new episode next week, but the facts return on April 13th. I know what we're going to be talking about. NBA playoffs are on the horizon, so we are probably going to be talking about that in two weeks on episode 59 on this podcast. And by the way, if you didn't know, there's a big golf tournament next week. Next week, the Masters. Oh boy, Augusta, Georgia. That's next week, just to let you know. But those are the facts for this week. Thank you all for listening. And remember, if you liked all the facts I had on episode 58 of the podcast, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, rate and review the podcast. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, like whatever, social media, Xander's Facts, that's Xander with a Z. And most importantly, tell all your friends, spread the facts, Xander's Facts Podcast, only facts on the Xander's Facts Podcast. Check out Xander's Facts on YouTube. Check out Xander's Weekend Facts, clicking the special link in this episode's description. Once again, it is free to do so. Guaranteed. No money, no charge. Oh my gosh. And then for all the Xander's Facts links, check out the link tree for everything Xander's Facts. That is in this episode's description. All the links that you need. So that is it. That is a wrap on episode 58 of the Xander's Facts podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And we'll see y'all with episode 59 in two weeks. Nugget.